1 Corinthians chapter 11. The title of the message is The Lord's Supper. And actually, it might be good if you put a question mark after that. Because uh, Paul's going to uh, bring up the possibility that this isn't even really the Lord's Supper, what these guys are uh, experiencing. We're going through uh, 1 Corinthians. And one of the issues that Paul is addressing is their behavior at uh, communion. But first, today, of course, is... I'm going to say, see, now the whole the spiritual people would say Palm Sunday. <laughs> but I would say April Fool's, too. April, April Fool's. I, I found some list of, of some April Fool's jokes that uh, were pulled on the public here. Uh, 1957, listen to this. A BBC television show announced that thanks to a mild winter and the virtual elimination of the spaghetti weevil, Swiss farmers were enjoying a bumper spaghetti crop. Footage of Swiss farmers pulling strands of spaghetti from trees prompted a barrage of calls from people wanting to know how to grow their own spaghetti at home. In Sweden in 1962, I guess these guys are real pranksters, um, they had only one television channel which broadcast in black and white. The station's technical expert appeared on the news to announce that thanks to a newly developed technology, this was 1962, viewers could convert their existing sets to receive color pictures by pulling a nylon stocking over the screen. In 1996, American fast food chain Taco Bell announced that it had bought Philadelphia's Liberty Bell from the federal government and was renaming it the Taco Liberty Bell. Outraged citizens called to express their anger before Taco Bell revealed the hoax. Then White House Press Secretary Mike McCurry was asked about the sale and said the Lincoln Memorial in Washington had been sold and was being renamed the Ford Lincoln Memorial after the, after the automotive plant. These are too good. I've got to keep going. In 1992, U.S. National Public Radio announced that Richard Nixon was running for president again. His new campaign slogan was, I didn't do anything wrong, and I won't do it again. (laughs) They even had clips of Nixon announcing his candidacy. Listeners flooded the show with calls expressing their outrage. Nixon's voice actually turned out to be that of impersonator Rich Little. Burger King, another American fast food chain, published a full-page advertisement in USA Today in 1998 announcing the introduction of the left-handed Whopper. Specially designed for the 32 million left-handed Americans. According to the advertisement, the new burger included the same ingredients as the original, but the condiments were rotated 180 degrees. The chain said it received thousands of requests for the new burger, as well as, as, well as orders for the original right-handed version. All right, last one, I promise. Noted British astronomer Patrick Moore announced on the radio in 1996 that at precisely 9.47 a.m., a a once-in-a-lifetime astronomical event in which Pluto would pass behind Jupiter would cause a gravitational alignment that reduced the Earth's gravity. He told listeners that if they jumped in the air at the exact moment of the planetary alignment, they would experience a floating sensation. (laughs) Hundreds of people called in to report that feeling. You're thinking, what in the world does that have to do with 1 Corinthians chapter 11? Well, I had to stretch, but it's this. There were some people in Corinth, in this church, that I think every time 
the Lord's Supper came around, they must have felt like it was a cruel April Fool's joke. The church in Corinth was a church with issues. 1 Corinthians, we've seen as a corrective epistle. Paul answering questions, he's uh, refereeing, if you will, sometimes. He's admonishing these guys on various issues. Today, there's a new issue. This was their behavior at the love feasts, the agape feasts. Now, what is a love feast? Well, come on Thursday over to the Nazarene Church, and you'll see as close as we can get. It's what we would call a potluck. Now, the original meaning of a potluck was actually food given away to guests, and it was probably derived from the idea of you give them whatever food one is lucky enough to find in the pot. Now, I like love feast better because it was, yeah, it was more accurate. See, the love feast, the agape feast, began in Acts chapter 2, Acts chapter 4, right after the Holy Spirit descended upon the church. And in both of those places, it talks about how the saints, all of them, had all things together in common. No one lacked. The rich people would look out for the poor people. Everyone on these agape feasts, they would bring a dish. The rich would bring a lot of food. The poor would bring what they could. Everyone would contribute. Everyone would eat together. It was a great way to fellowship. We still believe in this in Calvary Chapel. It's a wonderful picture of unity in Jesus. Galatians 3, verse 28, we referred to it in a, on Thursday. Paul said these words, There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. See, these love feasts, agape feasts, were a living portrait of that verse. Think about it. Greeks and Jews eating together. That might not sound like a, a big thing to you, but in that racist culture, Greeks and Jews eating together was an amazing thing. Slaves and masters eating together at the love feast. Husbands and wives actually talking together at the love feast. Poor folks and rich folks eating together at the same table. And this love feast would culminate in a communion service very similar to what we do. Now, that's how a love feast is supposed to go. But maybe a potluck was more accurate for what was happening in Corinth. Look, look with me at verse 17. 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 17. Paul says, Now, in giving these instructions, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. If you looked in verse 2, you'll see that Paul had praised the church for heeding his voice, on other issues. But now in verse 17, he's like, okay, about this new issue, this next subject, love feasts, I cannot praise you. He says, since you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. What a shame for a gathering of the church to do more harm than good. He says, you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. But that happens all the time when Christians are critical when they're self-centered. You guys heard that the phrase, some people are a blessing wherever they go, and some people are a blessing whenever they go. When the church is filled with the former, church is a blast. It's a joy. When a church is filled with the latter, church is a sentence. Now, I've got an outline for you today. Verses 18 through 22 
we're going to see a body broken by selfishness. In verses 23 to 26, we're going to see a body broken by selflessness. And in verses 27 to 34, we're going to see a body broken by self-examination. Look with me at verse 18. We're going to see now verse 18 through 22, a body broken by selfishness. He says, for first of all, when you came together, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And in part, I believe it. The word divisions there is schisma, is where we get the word schism. It means a tearing, a cutting, a division. The church is called, do we, do we not agree? The church is called a, the body of Christ, but this body in Corinth was broken. It was divided into factions. He says, and in part, I believe it. Now, if you've been with us, you know he can't mean, I sort of believe it, that there are divisions in the church. Because back in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, Paul said, there are divisions in the church. Some people follow Paul, some people follow Apollos. So he's not saying, I sort of believe that there are divisions in the church. The punctuation probably would be better read this way. I hear that there are divisions in the church, and I believe it, in part because of what I'm going to say in verse 19. Four. There must also be factions among you that those who are approved may be recognized among you. The word factions there is heresis. It's the same place we, we get the word heresies. What it means in this context is a body of men following their own tenets. It's a sect or a party that uh, is in opposition. It's talking about dissensions arising from diversity. So, Paul says, look, there must be divisions and dissensions among you. And he says the reason is that those who are approved may be recognized among you. See, what Paul is doing here, just for a very brief time, is looking at the glass half full. He's like, okay, yes, there are factions among you, he says, but you know what? There's a good reason for that. Paul was an optimist in this verse. The glass is half full. You guys know a pessimist says the glass is half empty. The realist says the glass is. The idealist says the glass should be full. The feminist says my glass seems less full than his. The environmentalist says save the water. The anarchist says break the glass. And the capitalist says sell the glass. Paul's looking at the glass half full here. He says look. Dissensions, divisions, separations are necessary that those who are approved, the word means genuine, may be made manifest. In other words, Paul is saying, look, there's a good thing that can come out of this. In other words, the cream rises to the top. I found this on Wikipedia. In unhomogenized milk, over time, the cream rises to the top. In the industrial production of cream, this process is accelerated by centrifuges called separators. Now, that's very encouraging to me because I've discovered, like every other church, our church sometimes has factions and fractions and dissenters and dividers. Paul says, look, that's always going to happen. He says it's necessary that those who are approved may be recognized among you, that the cream might rise to the top. Now, My own observation here is that when the centrifuge is operating, when controversy is swirling, when divisions come, whether it's in the church 
or in your home or at work, you can identify the cream rising to the top this way. It's the person that is slow to anger. It's the person that is quick to apologize. It's the person that is quick to forgive and that who is quick to move on. Paul says, look, when those times come, you can be the cream that rises to the top. Now, verse 20, Paul says, okay, enough of the encouragement. Let's get back to the rebuke. Verse 20, that word therefore, ours is the only uh, translation that has the word therefore. I'm not sure that it's helpful. Verse 20 says, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. Paul's saying, look, you guys can call it the Lord's Supper if you want, but is it the Lord's Supper? He says you can call it a love feast, but where is the love? Verse 21, for in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others, and one is hungry and another is drunk. See, the love feast had become a pig fest. What originally was a picture of unity, of sharing, had now become, look, every man for himself. So much so that in the same church, at the very same love feast, there was a poor man at the back of the line who goes hungry. While his brother in Christ, who had made sure to elbow his way to the front, is gorged on food and he's drunk. He's like, dude, did you try the chicken? It was awesome. Oh, never mind. That's right. You didn't get any because I ate it all. What had become... What had begun in Christian love, this love feast, was now Darwinian lust. Survival of the quickest. You snooze, you lose. I got mine. That's all that matters. And Paul is hot about it. Look at verse 22. He says, What? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. First, he says, do you, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? He's look, it's like, you guys are worse off for your meetings. I mean, if you really want to just fill your belly without regard to your brother, you would be better off staying at home. He says, or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? Think of how embarrassed the poor believers would be in Corinth at this so-called love feast. It must have played off like a cruel April Fool's joke. They're invited to this love feast. They probably show up a little bit later than others because they probably have to be working in the field longer to try to uh, cover for their family. They bring in a, a covered dish. It's meager, but it's prepared with love. They set it on the table. They go to the back of the line. By the time they get to the food, there's just scraps left. And all the families are sitting in their little cliques. Everybody's got their own little group. Paul says when that happens, he says you shame those who have nothing. You shame the poor who are supposed to be an integral part of this love feast. You shame those who have nothing and you, he says, despise the church of God. Where he says the church of God, that word church is the word ecclesia. If you've been with us, you remember that word means those who are called out. The Romans had this name and it was... uh, a badge of honor. It's like, well, you know, the the movers and the shakers of the Roman cities were the ecclesia. They'd be called out to help make decisions and those kind of things. Paul says, when you do these things, you are despising the ecclesia of God, not of Rome, but of God. 
you are despising those whom God has called out to be part of your group. Paul says, look, do you not remember that the person that you are shaming by your selfishness was called out by God? That poor person who you don't care about, whom you are eating in front of, he is part of God's ecclesia and you are shaming him with your selfishness. That's why Paul says at the end of that verse, what shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. He says, what can I say to you in response to this behavior? Can I say, hey, way to go, Corinthians? No way. Now, I doubt if anyone here on this coming Thursday will come to the love feast and snarf up all the food, especially after this teaching. (laughs) But let's talk about what's really happening here. To me, this is about Christians who used to come to church thinking, what can I bring to contribute? What can I give to feed my brother? And now these very same Christians are thinking, what's in it for me? Let me ask you a very pointed question. Do you ever find yourself saying, well, I didn't get much out of that service. I've been pastoring long enough now that I've heard this phrase. Well, I really like the church, but you don't have this or that to minister to me. Let me ask you, is that what church is about for you? Is church a potluck where you only come to get yours? You sometimes think, well, we were lucky today. We were lucky today in the pot. The pot was full of good stuff today. Or I didn't get much out of it today. Is church a potluck or is it a love feast where you come to give of yourself? Jesus said, our king said, the son of man did not come to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. There's nothing worse than a group of people saying, serve me. There's nothing better than a group of people looking for ways to serve each other. One of the simplest ways, if you're looking for an application, one of the simplest ways you can apply this right here is before you, before you leave today, say to somebody, how can I pray for you? It's funny because it's a great question. You learn a lot about people and they're kind of forced to, oh, I better think of something. And it starts conversations as well. So we've seen in the, the, the church of Corinth, we've seen a body of believers broken by selfishness. Now we're going to see in stark contrast a body broken by selflessness. See, Paul says, look, the reason I cannot praise you is that your love feast is so at odds with the picture that Jesus gave me. Look at verse 23. He says, for I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed took bread. And when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, take, eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, This cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. See, verse 23 says that Paul received this from the Lord. Now, that indicates it was a direct divine revelation. 
You remember, Paul wasn't one of the original 12. He wasn't actually at the scene. But it seems as though Jesus came to Paul. And we know that Jesus appeared to Paul at least two or three times. Apparently, Jesus came to him and played out the scene for him. said, look, Paul, this is the way that it happened on that night. See, they were celebrating the Passover, the deliverance of Israel out of Egypt. They were having a Seder very similar to what those of you who've signed up will be seeing in Leesburg on Friday. Pastor Bill will be conducting a Seder, and it was very similar. It will be very similar to what these guys were experiencing on that night. There were two very important parts of that dinner that were the breaking of the bread and the cup of redemption. Think about this. The very night that Jesus was going to be betrayed by Judas and deserted, forsaken by the rest, he gave thanks. That's amazing in itself. And then it says that he proceeded with an object lesson. He took the bread that was part of this Seder dinner. It was the same kind of bread that they would use at love feasts, at communion. The bread would have stripes from being scorched while baking. And it would have holes that would look like pierce marks. And it would be unleavened, meaning there was no yeast. If you're a study of student of the Bible, you know that yeast is a picture of sin. So this bread was, had stripes. It was pierced. It was without sin. And yet, it was broken. Jesus said, take, eat. This is my body which is broken for you. The word means on behalf of you. Paul says, or Jesus says, take, this is my body which is broken for your sake. Or you could say, instead of yours. What was the object lesson? Jesus says, look, this bread is a picture of my body without sin, yet striped, pierced, broken for you. Now, you know, no bone of Jesus was, was broken. It was, that was fulfilling prophecy. But his body, his skin, was literally broken open when they whipped him with that cat of nine tails. It was a whip with shards of glass, bone, metal, to inflict as much damage as possible. And Jesus said, take, this is my body which is broken for you. He says, when you do this, do this in remembrance of me. See, part of communion is looking back, remembering what Jesus did, what he did willingly for you and for me. Look at verse 25. He says, in the same manner, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. Next object lesson. Jesus holds up the cup and he says, this wine in this in this cup, the wine in this cup represents my blood spilled for you. And he said, there's a new covenant. The word new there is kainos. It's of a new kind, unprecedented, unheard of, a brand new covenant. What's a covenant? It is a contract, a promise. See, the old covenant, the old promise was the law of Moses, the Ten Commandments. The old covenant was a list of rules that you would try to live by to try to please God. And we know how that turned out. But Jesus said, in this cup, this wine in this cup represents, it's a picture of my blood which offers to all men a brand new, unprecedented, unprecedented, unheard of promise. 
We find the promise. You don't have to turn there, but you can if you want. Jeremiah 31 reads this way. I will put my law in in their minds and I will write it on their hearts and I will be their God and they shall be my people. No more shall every man teach his neighbor and every man his brother saying, know the Lord, for they shall all know me from the least of them to the greatest of them, says the Lord, for I will forgive their iniquity and their sin. I will remember no more. Hebrews 9 tells us that without the shedding of blood, there can be no remission, no forgiveness of sins. So Jesus says on that night, this cup represents my blood shed for you. This cup represents my promise that if you receive me, your sins will be blotted out forever. That you will have a relationship. You will actually know God. That you'll have a relationship with my father. He'll become your father. So Jesus says, when you drink this cup, remember me. Now what a contrast we have here. The Corinthians came to the table to be served. Jesus came to serve. The Corinthians came to get. Jesus came to give. The Corinthians came to take, but Jesus came to take away our sin. Verse 26, 1 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 26, Paul says, For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death, Till he comes. The word proclaim there is katageo. It means to announce, to declare, to preach. Now, you might not think you are a preacher. You might not think I'm much of a preacher. (laughs) But when we take communion, this verse says that we preach a sermon. We preach to God, a redeeming friend. We preach to the devil, a conquered foe, and we preach to the whole world around us that hangs in the balance. We preach this message. He's coming back. He died. He rose again. He's coming back. Are you ready? That's the message we preach. Look at verse 27. Paul says, therefore, for these reasons, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. Paul says, look, every time you eat this bread and you drink this cup, you are revisiting the cross. That's what we're going to do on Thursday. He says, when you do this, you rush back in history. You return to the scene of the crime. Paul says, when you approach this scene, brothers, you are standing on holy ground. I'm reminded it was the Roman guards that played cards, gambled went about their business at the foot of the cross. They didn't realize what was going on. What a travesty, Paul says, when Christians do the same. When people that call themselves Jesus' friends do the same. Just looking at communion as though it's uh, just another thing. Verse 28, Paul says, But let a man examine himself, and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. Now, these verses have troubled many Christians. I hope after today they will not trouble you anymore. See, some hear these words and they think, I can't take communion. I'm not worthy. Well, I got news for you. Nobody's worthy. It does not say here, he who eats and drinks who is unworthy is in trouble. 
That would be all of us. It says, he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner. For instance, by getting drunk at communion table. Or shaming the poor. Or being selfish during communion. Or being unaware of the cross that looms over you while you take communion. And verse 28 does not say, let a man examine himself and find a reason he cannot partake. It doesn't say, let a man examine himself and don't let him eat. It says, let a man examine himself and so let him eat. In other words, then let him eat. You examine yourself, you realize you are not worthy, and then Paul says you should eat. Verse 29, for he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. The word discerning there means to separate, to make a distinction, to notice a difference. Paul says, look, when you take communion, is it just another meal to you? Is it just another ceremony? He says, when you do these things, if it's not special, if you don't take the time to remember, to recognize, then you risk drinking and eating judgment to yourself. The word judgment there is klima, K-R-I-M-A. It's where we get the word crime. A degree of punishment, it means a degree of punishment against a criminal. Paul is saying, look, when you treat communion like you have, Corinthians, it's a crime. He says, and sometimes when you do the time, when you do the crime, you will do the time. Look at verse 30. For this reason, many are weak and sick among you, and many sleep. See, this is why so many people are intimidated when it comes to communion. They misunderstand this verse, and then they think, well... I might end up dead. This is talking about father and son or father and daughter discipline. Like any good father, he disciplines his children. Look at verse 31. It says, for if we would judge ourselves, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. The word chastened there is pahidiou. It means to train children to chasten children, to train them with blows. It's appropriate that it sounds like the word paddle you. Proverbs 13:24 says, He who spares his rod hates his son, but he who loves him disciplines him promptly. Hebrews 12:6 says, For whom the Lord loves, he chastens. Same word. He scourges every son whom he receives. Listen. I will not paddle my neighbor's kids. If you're HRS, I will not paddle mine either. I'll chasten them. I'll discipline them. Here's my point. If you're in the woodshed today, as some of you may be, no doubt some of you are, if you're in the woodshed today, it's a good thing. God will never paddle someone else's kids. But he'll paddle you. He'll chasten you. He will correct you. Sometimes with a time out. Because it says here that some are weak. Some are sick. See, a physical illness or a weakness, what does it do? It slows you down. It makes you think, Lord, do I need to take some things into perspective? Do I need to reassess? Sometimes a physical illness or weakness will make you slow down and reassess. Sometimes Paul says he'll ground you, meaning he'll make you come home early. 
Ray Steadman puts it this way. Regarding uh, this, he says, some many sleep. That word sleep means actually to die. Now, for a Christian, it is just sleep. Ray Steadman says, come on home, son, What is what God says. Come on home, son, I can't trust you down there anymore. Now, let me make sure that you understand. I'm not saying that every sickness, every disease is a paddling. Don't think that if your brother is sick, don't go, hey, what'd you do? But when you find yourself laid out, it's definitely worth taking the time to say, Lord, are you trying to get my attention here? Verse 32, Paul says, but when we are judged, we are chastened, corrected, disciplined by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. Those are two hugely different words, chastened and condemned. See, a father chastens. A judge condemns. There's a huge difference. One is for your good, right? It's going to hurt me a lot more than it is you, son, right? One is for your good. One is for good. One is to prepare you for your future. One is your future. A father chastens, but a judge condemns. What you do with Jesus If you don't know him today, what you do with him determines which relationship you'll have with God. Father or judge. You see, what we have here in this last few verses is a third broken body. We saw the body of believers broken by their selfishness. We saw the body of Christ broken by his supreme selflessness. And now we see the body of a repentant sinner Broken by self-examination. See, when I stand before the cross, when I really, truly transport myself to the place where the cross looms over me, and I look at my own life, and I look at my own choices, the way I respond to hurts and offenses, I am broken. Not broken like shattered. Broken like a wild horse. See the difference? Broken like, I give up. I surrender. I say once again, Lord, not my will, but yours be done. That's what communion is all about. Becoming broken before him. The Lord uses broken things. I'm so glad he does. Maybe today you you look at your own life and all you see is broken things. A broken marriage. Or a broken promise, a broken heart, a broken relationship. The Lord uses broken vessels. He uses vessels that say, I give up, Lord. Have thine own way. Verses 33 and 34, as we close here, is a summary. Nothing real too deep about this. Verse 33, Paul says, Therefore, my brethren... In summary, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. But if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment. And the rest I will set in order when I come. Now, if this was the stuff that he could talk about, I wonder what the rest is. 